All right, well, my sophomore year of high school, uh, my, I, my, my math teacher, Enriched Algebra II math teacher, became my nemesis. And not for the reasons you're probably thinking. I actually enjoyed math. I liked math in high school. It made sense to me. Um, it came pretty easily to me. So it wasn't a math issue. It was a personality conflict. Uh, and, and it started, innocently enough, first day of class, you know, she passes out the syllabus, we're looking through it, and then she gave what was obviously the speech she gives on the first day of class every year, uh, where she faced the class and she said, look, it's, you need to understand, this is enriched Algebra 2, all right? Some of you have managed to slide by, you know, just maybe on, on your natural affinity for math, uh, you've been able to do the bare minimum and still get some pretty good grades, still manage to make it into this class, but that ends here. So just so you know, in this class, if you want an A or even really a B, you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to do all the homework. You don't do all the homework. You don't work hard in class. The best you can possibly hope for is a C. It's probably a sensible speech. I mean, in hindsight, I find it very reasonable. Uh, but at the time, I was a 16-year-old boy. And so my only response to that when I heard that speech was, Challenge accepted, right? I decided right then and there I was going to make it my goal over the next year to do two things, to get an A in her class and to do the bare minimum possible, right? I, I was going to do very little homework, uh, although I will stress in case there are any high schoolers in here, uh, when I did need the practice, I did do the homework, okay? I wasn't crazy. I still wanted the A. Um, but I wanted, you know, she had given her little speech. I was going to prove her wrong. That's all. It's just my personality. Uh, it probably worked for most of the students. Did not work well on me. And I will say, in fairness to myself, uh, the other part of that equation was that she was stubborn too. She could have just shrugged at me and said, well, good for you, congratulations, and focused on the rest of the class. Uh, but over the course of that first semester, that little situation just escalated. I won't go into the details. Uh, but suffice it to say that every day, she was trying to prove to me that I needed to do all the homework, and every day I was trying to prove to her that no, in fact, I did not. Right? So she, she became my nemesis. Um, and so... One day, one Saturday evening, I come home from wherever I was, and I walk into my house, and I, I do a double take, because uh, my parents have their new small group over, and who should be sitting in my living room <laughs> but my nemesis? We made eye contact. I felt that, like, cold sweat go down the back of my neck, and I panicked because I knew, I mean... Back then, if my teacher had told my parents about our little standoff, uh, there was no doubt in my mind whose side my parents were going to be on, and it was not going to be mine, right? I knew I was in big trouble if they caught wind of this. I'm probably going to get a phone call after they listen to the sermon, as a matter of fact. Uh, and so I panicked, and I thought, oh man, if she tells my parents, I'm dead meat. Uh, and then after that, uh, as, I, as I started to calm down thinking, uh, if she had told them, I would have already, you know, my mom would have probably laid hands on me as soon as I came through the door. And that hadn't happened. Uh, and, and so then after that, I, I have to admit, I, I was irritated. I was, I was almost upset. What is this lady doing in my parents' small group? 
And, and I, I, don't, I don't want her at my church. I mean, church was the place I went to be with my friends, to be with people who cared about me and supported me. Church was not supposed to be where I ran into my nemesis, okay? I didn't like that arrangement. Later, when I calmed down a bit, uh, I had time to think about my knee-jerk response. And I think I would say that up until that moment, in the way that teenagers do, I had assumed that I was on the side, you know, maybe not of justice, but at least of liberty and good sense, right? I mean, why would I waste my precious time practicing something I already knew how to do when, when that time was needed on other subjects and other activities? But in that moment, I found it hard to defend the fact that I had been, even just briefly, irritated that someone new had come to church. I mean, if I was living and behaving in a way that meant I wasn't happy to see people come to church learning about Jesus, I must have been doing something wrong. Because if I knew anything, I mean, I was not a great theologian at age 16, though I probably thought I was. Uh, but if I knew anything, I knew this, that the gospel is good news for everyone, even my nemesis. Now, our sermon series this Advent is titled, A Savior for All, and the point of the series is to remind us and to celebrate together exactly that fact, that the good news about Jesus is good news for the lost and for the brokenhearted, for the angry, for addicts, for the smug and self-righteous, for the successful for seekers, for sinners. The Jesus revealed in the Gospels is a savior for all. And this week, we're beginning the series with a topic that if I do my job well this morning, I think should be challenging and inspiring to all of us. And it's this. This week, we remember that Jesus is a savior for all, even, even for enemies. So what I want to do is this. I want to read three short stories this morning from the New Testament, each one an example of the way from the very beginning, from the very beginning that just illustrates that Jesus' followers, the early church understood immediately that Jesus was a savior even for their enemies. As we'll see, some of them literally bet their life on that fact. But before we get there, I just want to pause for a second, because it's easy to take that for granted today. I think we say that a lot uh, to our credit. We, we all mostly understand that walking around. But the fact is that at the time of Jesus' birth, conventional wisdom would have gone very much the other direction. The assumption among God's people at the time of Jesus' birth was that good news for them, for the Jews, would have been bad news for Rome. They assumed that when the Messiah came, he would save his people from the Romans. And it went without saying that that was going to be bad news if you were Roman. They assumed that when the Messiah came, uh, he was going to defeat, uh, maybe even slaughter the Romans, throw them out of Israel and humiliate them. The Messiah was going to be a savior for God's people and he was going to be bad news for their pagan Roman occupiers. But it went even deeper than that. 
Even within the Jewish community, the Pharisees and those who thought like them assumed that the advent of the Messiah would be good news for them, but bad news, bad news for sinners. That is, they thought that the Messiah was going to be good news for the zealous, obedient, and faithful among God's people, and they thought it was going to be, uh, they were going to be vindicated and exalted and rewarded. And likewise, they assumed that those who to their minds, you know, had flouted the law and the traditions and the festivals, they assumed that when the Messiah showed up, those people were going to be judged. A Messiah for the faithful and a righteous judge for sinners, whatever their national identity. That's part of the reason why when Jesus shows up and conducts his ministry in the way that he conducts it, that many of them struggle to recognize him for who he is. Because Jesus makes it clear that he comes, yes, to save his people, but not only his people, but the Romans too. He is a savior not just for the righteous, but also for sinners. He's a savior for all, even for their enemies. So the first, first point this morning is that Jesus is a savior for our enemies, even for those we resent. And I want to read from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Uh, for all of these, I'd kind of ask you, feel free to read along, but I'd like you to try and imagine the situation. Imagine the scenario that we're reading about here. So here in Luke 19, we find Jesus. He enters Jer Jericho as he was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. But all the people saw this and began to mutter, he, he, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this story is a good example of good news for everyone in a few different ways, but I want to reflect on one particular part of this this morning. Look at the response of the crowds in verse 7. How do they respond when Zacchaeus receives what is obviously good news for him? which is that Jesus is coming to his house. How do they respond? They resent it, right? They mutter amongst themselves. Uh, they say, what is, what is this guy doing? We thought he was, a, he, thought he was a, a wise rabbi, maybe the Messiah. He's going to the house of a sinner? And not just a sinner, by the way, a tax collector. And maybe we should note, just for the record, uh, they resented tax collectors for good reason, uh, they saw them as traitors. These were Jewish people who had compromised with Rome 
uh, who had grown prosperous by siding with the Romans against their own people. I mean, the Romans at least, look, you don't have to like them, but you can understand they're Roman, and so they support Rome, they fight for Rome. But what good could you say of a Jew who partnered with the Romans, who grew rich by helping the pagans oppress their own people? Again, we should remind ourselves the widely held expectation, the hope even, is that when the Messiah came, it would be good news for the, for the people and bad news for people like Zacchaeus. Bad news for tax collectors. You know, you even get the sense, I think, just by the way Zacchaeus behaves, that deep down, he even believes that. That even he thinks, it'll be good to see the Messiah, but it'll probably be bad for me. And yet... Jesus swiftly corrects this misunderstanding of his mission. He has come to save sinners, even those farthest from God, even those uh, his own people most resented, even tax collectors. Today, he declared, salvation has come to this house because Jesus is the Savior for all, even those we resent, even tax collectors. A few years ago, we were talking, uh, Heidi and I were talking with some other couples, uh, friends of ours, and one couple at one point uh, opened up and began to share about the trouble they'd been having with uh, one of their immediate neighbors. And the more they shared, the more I just was incredulous. I couldn't believe it. Uh, they, they, these neighbors had called the police on them several times, I mean, just for crazy, trivial things. Um, just totally out of the blue because one day the husband is mowing his yard and he's set foot in his neighbor's yard to like mow the edge of his property. Uh, they called the police and reported him for trespassing. Happened multiple times. Uh, they threatened to sue them over and over again, sue them if they didn't change the landscaping on the side of their yard to reduce water runoff. And then when they spent thousands of dollars to do exactly that, just to try and make peace, they threatened to sue them again if they didn't change it again. And, you know, the more they talked, the more everyone just kind of grew outraged at this situation. I mean, it's just, it's, it's terrible. We felt terrible for our friends. And on the way home, you know, Heidi and I are trying to wrap our minds around this. Uh, and I, in particular, I just, I couldn't understand it. I mean, why anyone would behave this way at all, let alone to your immediate neighbor, to people you are going to have to see day in and day out uh, for as long as you both choose to live there. I mean, it just seemed unbelievable to me. Uh, and, and we were angry with these people on behalf of our friends. I certainly was. I thought of those neighbors this week as I was preparing the sermon uh, because it occurred to me that the way I felt about those neighbors is probably pretty close to how Zacchaeus' neighbors felt about him. And of course, once I went that far, the next thought in my mind was, and Jesus came for people just like them. So, as we consider this story, I'd like us to ask, all of us this morning, just ask yourself today, in whose house would you be irritated or maybe even resentful to find Jesus today? I know it's a weird place in the sermon to do it, but I'd like to actually encourage you just take a moment and think about that. 
Just a little examination. Maybe someone will come to mind, maybe not. Just take a minute and think about that. You know, I don't know who it might be for you. Maybe it is a genuinely difficult neighbor. Uh, Maybe it's someone from the other side of the political aisle who who seems to just enjoy trolling you, you know, saying things that drive you nuts. Maybe it's a coworker who got the promotion that you deserved. Whoever it is, with that person in mind, maybe their face, maybe their name, I'd like you to just think about that person and hear again the words of Jesus in verse 10. That Jesus certainly would say to you, as you think of that person, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God soften our hearts this morning and remind us that he is a Savior for all, even those we resent. So that's number one. Number two, he is a Savior even for those who persecute us. Our next story comes from Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. It says this, Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and they brought him before the Sanhedrin. Then they produced false witnesses who testified, who said, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? I just want you to consider what we're told here. This is just the setup. Stephen is arrested He's falsely accused. He's slandered by paid liars. He is literally the victim of a conspiracy to poison the minds of the crowds and the elders. And of course, though I hate to spoil the ending, the truth is the conspiracy works. And Stephen is stoned to death for his allegiance to Jesus, executed, martyred by these people. That, friends, whatever else you want to call it, is some serious persecution. It's persecution driven by anger, um, by jealousy, uh, and, and by the firm conviction that they are right and that Stephen is wrong. And how does Stephen respond to this persecution, to these lies and to this slander? Does he call down curses on his enemies? Uh, does he joyfully anticipate their, their, ju- their judgment and their punishment? With his life in the balance, in in the next chapter, Stephen literally risks and loses his life to proclaim the gospel to the very people who are doing this to him. 
In Acts 7, he responds to their false and manufactured charges, not with scorn or rage, but with the truth, with the message that Jesus, whom they also persecuted, is in fact the Messiah, the righteous one of God, and their Savior, if only they will accept him. I think this is an incredible story because it illustrates how from the very beginning, from the first weeks and months of the church's existence, the followers of Jesus were convinced they were willing to bet their life on the fact that Jesus was a savior, not just for the righteous and faithful, but even for enemies, even for those who persecuted the church and who persecuted Jesus. The truth is, as believers in America, we have seldom known real persecution of this kind. Uh, Certainly not of the kind experienced by Stephen or our our brothers and sisters today in Iran or, or China or in many other places. But that, as Jesus and the rest of the New Testament authors remind us, is the exception. It's not the norm. And I think it's fair to say that we are, in fact, starting to see more of it even if in relatively small things. Maybe it's just some pressure at work or at school to to hide or to compartmentalize what we believe, to keep quiet. Sometimes it might be more aggressive. I would encourage you this morning that when those situations arise, we could hardly do better than to follow the example of Stephen, who responded to persecution and lies with boldness and the truth. But neither can we forget that he found the courage to do it because he believed, even at the cost of his own life, that Jesus was a savior for everyone, even for those who were persecuting him. Jesus is a savior for all, even for enemies, for those we resent, for those who persecute us, uh, and third, for those who have wronged us. So for our last story, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verses 25 to 34. Uh, Here, Paul and Silas are in Philippi, and in the course of sharing the gospel, Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. But this angers her owner, who had made a lot of money by marketing her as a fortune teller. And so Paul and Silas are dragged before the magistrates. Uh, They're thrown in prison on charges that are, you know, dubious at best, No trial, no due process as guaranteed to a Roman citizen. And here's where we pick up the story. Verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at the hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Now I'll admit, I'm I'm cheating a little bit here. Strictly speaking, the jailer is not the one who trumped up charges against Paul and Silas. He didn't drag them before the magistrates or throw them in prison without due process. Other people did that. But on the other hand, I'll just say, you put me in that situation, I'm blaming everybody, the jailer included, right? Uh, I'm not making those fine distinctions. I'm angry with all of them. I'm angry, as we would say today, with the whole system. Righteous indignation, of course, righteous indignation. But my view would be that all of these people have wronged me, right? Uh, and, And there's no doubt. I mean, Paul and Silas are victims of injustice. They've been wronged at every step along the way. And by the way, all of this in response to a good deed for helping this young woman who'd been possessed by a demon. And yet now, in prison, Rather than railing against those who have wronged them, we find Paul and Silas doing what? Praying and singing hymns, of course, in the middle of the night. And then, miraculously, the prison's shaken, the doors fly open, their chains fall off. And the jailer, seeing all this happen, panics. And why does he panic? He panics because he knows what he would do in their situation. Uh, I have a feeling I know what I would do in that situation. I'm out, right? I'm leaving. Uh, when when I, I would celebrate my release and my deliverance and my vindication, it's good news for me. And if it's bad news for the jailer, oh well. I guess that's what he gets for partnering with this corrupt system. I mean, that's my guess on what I would be thinking because I'll tell you this. When I am wronged, I'm worried about me. My prayers, my thoughts, my hope revolve around how God can deliver me from that situation. But oddly, not Paul and Silas. Their chains fall off, their doors fly open. They know they've been wrongly accused. They have to understand this is an act of God. And yet they assume, they think, not of themselves, not of their deliverance, but of the jailer who does not yet know Jesus. And when he draws his sword to take his, take his life, Paul stops him. Don't. We're all here. And the jailer, incredulous, thinking, you know, of course, why are you all here? Falls at their feet and asks, what, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas have their answer ready. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Because Jesus is a savior for all, even for enemies, even for those who have wronged us. Now, there's an interesting coda to this story. Uh, When the magistrates learn that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, they panic, realizing this whole episode could land them in some serious trouble with the Roman authorities. So they order their immediate release. And it's interesting, it's a little interesting note we're given, which is that Paul doesn't just brush off their poor treatment. He says, no, 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 you treated us, you wronged us, I'm not going to ignore it, I'm not going to just look away, Uh, you're going to come down here in person and escort us out. And you know what? They do. 
I think it's an interesting detail. I might be reading too much into it, but here's my suggestion. I think as followers of Jesus, we should not be surprised when we suffer persecution or injustice. But, we sh- but God doesn't ask us to enjoy it or ignore it. Or as Paul says, he doesn't ask us to go quietly. But he does ask us, I think, in the midst of trials, to keep our eyes fixed on the mission. He asks us to remember that Jesus came for everyone, even for those who wrong us. We don't need to let them get away with injustice, but neither should we let them get away without hearing the gospel. I know the Apostle Paul wouldn't. Uh, my wife and kids went uh, just yesterday to see, or Friday, to see uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe put on a play put on at her local high school. Uh, if you're familiar with the story, it's a great story, written by C.S. Lewis a while ago. It's about the four uh, Pevensey children, two brothers, two sisters, who find a way from rural England to a magical land called Narnia through a wardrobe. Uh, and there's one sibling, Edmund, Every time I read or watch an adaptation of this, I just, I can't stand this kid, all right? <laughs> you know, you laugh because you know it's true. I, he, he's, he's just a brat, uh, and later when he gets the chance, he proves he's not just a brat, he's a traitor, right? So he starts out when it's just he and his youngest sister who, who make it into Narnia, they come back and, and he denies that he's been there just to make the younger sister look and feel stupid in front of her older siblings. That's all. That's the only reason he does it. Uh, and, and then later, when he goes, when they all go through to Narnia, he betrays them to the evil white witch who's oppressing the whole land of Narnia, just serves up all his siblings right on a silver platter. Uh, and so as the story unfolds, and eventually Aslan shows up, he's the rightful lord of Narnia, and it's clear, you know, he's going to uh, get rid of the right of this evil white witch, and he's going to restore Narnia. And there's a part of you, might be a small part, might be a big part, that just longs to see Edmund get his, right? He does, he's got it coming. Uh, he, he hangs his little sister out to dry. He betrays all of his other siblings. And you think, all right, if Aslan's going to do justice, if he's going to punish the queen, if he's going to punish the evil forces oppressing everyone there in Narnia, Edmund should be right up there for some judgment and punishment. And yet that's not how the story unfolds. As the story unfolds, in a maybe shocking twist, we find out that quite the reverse, Aslan, rightful lord of Narnia and many other worlds besides, lays down his life as a literal ransom to ransom Edmund back from the White Queen. It's a story that endures even to this day. I think Netflix is in the process of adapting it again because it echoes, uh, definitely on purpose, the story of Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God, the rightful Lord of all creation. And he came to earth in the flesh to seek and save sinners. Yes, Jesus came to deliver God's people, to make the lame to walk and the blind to see. He came for the faithful. He came for the upright and the obedient. But the incredible truth of Advent is that Jesus brought salvation for all people, even for enemies. 
even for those who had persecuted and wronged his people, even for Romans, even for tax collectors. Because the gospel about Jesus is good news, not just for the righteous and lovable, but for everyone. Because Jesus is a savior for all, even for our enemies. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, we are inspired and challenged by that simple truth. Even as the people of Jesus' own day were, God, how inspiring, how incredible uh, to be partners in, in the work of God to bring salvation to the whole world, no one excluded. And yet, Father, we have to confess at times uh, that that wonderful, glorious mission is incredibly challenging for us when we get down to the particulars of everyday life. Because, Lord, there are people who persecute us, who wrong us. Uh, there are people who we resent. We shouldn't, maybe, but we do. And, Lord, we need to be reminded, regularly even, that you came as a Savior for everyone, even for them, even for enemies. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would remind us this morning of that profound truth of Advent. And Lord, help us uh, so that we might not only celebrate that truth, but we might be partners in bringing the good news to all. In your name we pray, amen.